Hello, and welcome to Crashing the War Party. I am here with my compatriot, Daniel Larison, and we find ourselves, as always, in an interesting perch. The world is seemingly on fire. A major land war in Europe continues, and now a war in the Gaza Strip, in which, aside from the 1,200 Israelis killed in a Hamas attack on October 7th, more than 11,000 Palestinians have now been killed from daily Israeli aerial bombardments and ground operations there. As critics of U.S. foreign policy, there is nothing worse than seeing in real time mistakes of years of weak leadership, poor decisions, hubris, and corrupting foreign influence on U.S. national interests. In short, these wars, both in Ukraine and Israel, might have been avoided, uh, but it would have taken years, if not decades, of a more enlightened, more humble, more common-sense agenda on the part of Washington. We will be talking about this, about how the rest of the world has been reacting to the events on the ground in Gaza and how the U.S. has been handling it with Giorgio Cafiero of Gulf State Analytics in the first segment. But first, there was a big meeting or there is a big meeting building. Uh, We are recording on Wednesday. This will be coming out on Friday. So we'll be covering it as such. But a huge meeting between Xi Jinping, China's President and Joe Biden, American president today in San Francisco on the sidelines of the Asia Pacific Economic Cooperation Meeting. According to reports on Wednesday, Biden and Xi were expected to agree to restore some military to military communications and revive regular talks called the Military Maritime Consultative Agreement, Consultative Agreement, which until 2020 had kept both militaries talking to one another and keeping them abreast of security issues in the South China Sea and in the region. U.S. military leaders have expressed repeated concerns about the lack of communications in this realm, particularly as a number of quote-unquote unsafe or unprofessional interests or incidents between the two nations, ships and aircraft, have spiked. Uh, these, These communications collapsed. In 2022, during the COVID drama and the visit by Nancy Pelosi to Taiwan uh, that summer of 2022, she was the highest ranking member of the U.S. government to visit Taiwan since Speaker Newt Gingrich in 1997, and it was a major slight to the Chinese government. Dan, this has been uh, a carefully prepared summit that comes in the wake of some, uh, you know, Tension, uh, and but also moments filled with promise, uh, like the myriad of Biden administration officials that have gone to China to visit in recent months and lay groundwork for trade and economic cooperation, for example. Um, but then there's the tension too, like the you know the the military, the Pentagon coming out talking uh, the other uh, week about 180 incursions by. Chinese military in the skies over the South China Sea and the spy balloon incident earlier this year. Now, this meeting could go either way. Uh, It could be a big nothing burger or it could actually be something, uh, an an open door to uh, more detente in the future. So what are your thoughts on uh, the big meeting, what might come out of it, and uh, some of uh, some of the, I guess, the groundwork that had been laid ahead of it. Um, what are your thoughts in general? Uh, sure, thanks, Kelly. Uh, so it's it's good news that she and Biden are meeting at all. 
uh, it seemed like for a long time that even this might not happen. Uh, it was it was uh, not clear at all earlier in the year that they would end up having another summit meeting of any kind. Uh, there there was of course that meeting last year in Bali where they seemed to have stabilized the relationship, and then as you mentioned, the balloon incident and then other uh, episodes uh, involving Taiwan also uh, served to destabilize the relationship once again. Uh, and then probably get to its lowest point uh, in the Biden presidency. And they've been struggling to get military-to-military communications back uh, after Pelosi's ill-advised trip to Taipei last year. Uh, it seems like that might actually happen, but there's there's been a lot of wasted time, a lot of wasted opportunities where that probably could have happened sooner. Uh, but it, it, obviously, if they get that done, that's good news. There have been some reports that they may strike a bargain on uh, Chinese crackdown on fentanyl supply or the supply of the precursor chemicals that lead to the production of fentanyl, uh, that may help to address the problem uh, at least a little bit. I don't know if it will satisfy the people that are uh, most angry about that issue, uh, that are calling for invading Mexico and things like that. Uh, but it is some, it is modest progress on an issue that many people have been pointing to as a, a big problem in the relationship. Uh, there's also some discussion of arms control uh, in, in preliminary talks between officials ahead of the summit. The fact that they're talking about arms control at all is a good thing, but the two sides are too far apart uh, for that to, to lead to anything significant, I think. Uh, I guess there is some discussion of excluding the use of artificial intelligence in their nuclear programs, um, respective nuclear arsenals. And certainly that's good news if they decide to to you know rule out creating skynet uh but i don't know that that's that there was really much danger that anyone was actually going to use artificial intelligence in that capacity anyway because of the inherent dangers of doing that so i, I think there, there may be some modest agreements coming out of this summit uh it's not going to be much uh it's it's better that they're meeting that that they're not uh but the 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 larger issue is that the, the two sides are otherwise pursuing these policies of on our side of containment and rivalry and on the Chinese side of, of pushing very hard against those policies. And there's, there's not going to be a lot of uh, improvement in the relationship. And of course, election year pressure to bash China and engage in a lot of posturing on Taiwan seems likely to erase whatever gains they might make uh, at this meeting. As far as the larger APEC summit goes, uh, the U.S. doesn't really have a, a serious approach to economic statecraft, and, and that pro core problem hasn't been fixed. And I don't think there's any uh, realistic chance that it's going to be fixed uh, at this summit or in the, the months to come. Uh, I think the best that the Biden administration is going to do is to talk up the importance of IPEF, uh, which is their, their economic framework that doesn't really offer Asian countries very much in the way of market access or any of the things that they're actually interested in. And so here you are at this big economic cooperation conference, and the U.S. is offering basically peanuts. Uh, and that's that's going to redound to China's benefit because China, of course, uh, has the, the advantage in terms of economic engagement with these countries already, and it's going to, to keep expanding on that advantage. Yeah, I mean, I really get the sense here that the Biden administration is um, spread very thin right now, and and for obvious reason. I mean, like I mentioned in the opening, we have a major 
land war in Ukraine that has sucked up a lot of our, our time, energy, resources, military and otherwise for a good part of two years. And then seemingly, and I put in this quote, in quotes, out of the blue, we have a an absolute catastrophe unfolding military and humanitarian-wise in the Gaza Strip, in which the Biden administration has been forced to redirect all of those uh, resources, energy, military weapons, uh, diplomatic efforts to Israel. And I feel like this third front, as we've been calling it, in China has, um, I'm not saying that it's getting short shrift or that attention has been completely stolen away, but I think some of the work that needs to be done with the global South, which is heavily represented at this APEC meeting, is you know, not getting the, I guess, the, the full attention of the U.S. government. And, and, and I'm not saying that there aren't agencies that are dealing with this on an everyday basis, but in terms of like the top shelf, like the National Security Council, the presidency, I just don't feel like that Biden has a, is, is fully engaged in what needs to be done there. Just to go back to U.S.-China and the U.S.-China policy, we had a great piece by Ethan Paul at uh, Responsible Statecraft uh, this week, sort of setting the table for these uh, for these meetings in in San Francisco, and he talked about you know the ongoing Biden administration policy, and uh, he talked about it as um, intense diplomacy amid intense competition. Uh, the sense that the Biden administration can pursue these two tracks uh, of competition, but also uh, keeping open dialogue with with China, and and oftentimes uh, and in, in in key moments like this, it's just not working out too well because the the signals that we're giving to China uh, about uh, intense uh, diplomacy, even is this idea of guardrails on the relationship, particularly, and this is uh, Ethan talking now, particularly military to military dialogue and crisis management mechanisms meant to ensure that aggressive maneuvers from both sides do not cause an accident uh, that inadvertently sparks a crisis. Um, He says, this is where the Biden administration's vision goes wrong, even if there is a reopening of some of the military channels that you and I were just talking about in the opening. Beijing has a history of not picking up the phone. Um, In its view, guardrails of this sort serve as a source of moral hazard, creating a safety net that only incentivizes and encourages the U.S. to engage in military activities that Beijing sees as an anathema to its interests, security, and prestige. I think what Ethan is getting at is that, you know, the Biden administration has established an approach to China, which tries to have it both ways wants to open up dialogue, but at the same time impose security guardrails as well as the intense competition, which include export controls uh, on China. And we, in our mind, this is a a rational way of approaching, but yet uh, the the Chinese government does not see it this way. They see those are all messaging um, that are having a negative impact on the relationship. Whether or not these talks can sort of like push through 
um, the the mixed messaging that we seem to send is is up for question. Obviously, having them meet, as Ethan said, is a quote unmitigated good. Um, but there's there are fundamental contradictions in the approach. And there's a lot of history there that they got to get through um, that, you know, these meetings will just never be able to grapple with um, in the short time uh, that they are engaged. We'd like to introduce Giorgio Caffiero to our show today. Giorgio is the CEO and founder of Gulf State Analytics, a geopolitical risk consultancy based in Washington, D.C. He is also an adjunct assistant professor at Georgetown University and an adjunct fellow at the American Security Project. Thanks for coming on the show, Giorgio. Thank you. Good to be with you guys. Yeah, no, this is fantastic. Um, And you've been doing a lot of great work and analysis um, and we appreciate you writing for Responsible Statecraft. Um, you have a ton of great sources across the Middle East uh, that you can bring to bear for your story. So we really appreciate that. And so we're excited to talk a little bit about what's been going on in the Middle East today, particularly in Gaza, and how the the region has been reacting, and even more broadly, the more geopolitical uh, dynamics uh, that have um, responded, how they're responding uh, to the events there in in Gaza and Israel writ large. Um, you wrote a great piece for Responsible Statecraft back in early November called China and Israel Have Enjoyed Serious Ties, What Happens Now? And this was an interesting piece and 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 not very much explored I don't think by the mainstream in terms of how China has been reacting to the Israeli bombardments in Gaza and what kind of role that it might play in future mediating situations. Uh, you say, enjoying close ties to Israel and decent relations with major Palestinian Lebanese players, including Hamas and Hezbollah, Beijing's foreign policy in the post-Mao era has been quite balanced between Israel and Arab actors. But Israel's conduct of the war is pushing Beijing to take a stance that is increasingly pro-Palestinian, which risks harming its relations with Tel Aviv. Can you talk a little bit about where China might stand today and how assertively it might be talking to Israel about its you know, about China's humanitarian concerns in Gaza, or has it quieted down a little? I mean, you wrote this earlier in November. What's going on with China in relation to this issue today? I think it's important to consider the Chinese interests that are at stake when Chinese policymakers look at the Middle East. They're very focused on how this region matters to the Belt and Road Initiative. The Middle East is uh, connecting China and the rest of Asia to Europe. 
And officials in Beijing want to see stability in the Middle East. And it's really within that context that China had an incentive to help bring Saudi Arabia and Iran toward their renormalization of diplomatic relations back in March of this year. The Chinese are incredibly concerned about how the war on Gaza has potential to fuel a tremendous amount of instability all over the Middle East, instability that would threaten the Belt and Road Initiative. So China very much wants to see, A, the conflict not spill into other parts of the Middle East, and B, a a ceasefire come into place, and then C, eventually a resolution of the decades-long Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And China has been very clear for decades that they believe that international law needs to be the basis of resolving the conflict between the Israelis and Palestinians. China has been very supportive of a two-state solution. Um, I think right now, amid this current conflict, China, very much like Russia, is trying to take advantage of the extent to which anti-Americanism is surging in the wider Arab and Islamic world. I think China is really trying to present itself to Arab, Muslim, and more broadly speaking, global South countries as a rising power, which is standing against what the U.S. stands for. So as much as China has some concerns about the instability and the humanitarian disasters stemming from this horrific war on Gaza, there's also some optimism among Chinese officials that this crisis can lead to some soft power gains for China at the expense of the U.S.'s image and the U.S.'s reputation in the Middle East. I'll just add that some people have been, some analysts have been suggesting that China, uh, which is also uh, on good terms with Israel, at least it has been really since the 1990s, Um, There's been some talk about China playing some sort of a mediating role between Israel and the Palestinians. With all due respect to Chinese officials, I do not think Beijing is in a position to play this role, mostly due to the fact that I don't think China has leverage over Israel that would be necessary to sort of rein in Israel's behavior. I think as long as the U.S. is going to be giving Israel this ironclad support, the Israelis don't really have any incentive to stop what they're doing. And also, as I mentioned in that article, China has uh, very deep ties with Israel that span across so many sectors, logistics, technology, ports, infrastructure, education, health, so on and so forth. Uh, China, I don't think, would necessarily want to rock the boat too much in terms of its relationship with Israel. And there are a number of groups in uh, Lebanon and Palestine, other places that have complained about China not doing more to stand against Israel. And I think that We need to see that China is probably going to try to maintain a relatively balanced relationship and probably not ever do anything to try to put too much pressure on Israel. But what we are seeing is a bit of a shift away from a traditionally very balanced position between the Israelis and the Palestinians in favor of, at least rhetorically speaking, a little bit more of a pro-Palestinian stance. Yeah, I think it, the the emphasis on rhetorically 
uh, speaking. And I also see a little bit of uh, similarity in the way that their relationship with Russia has played out over the Ukraine war. I know at the beginning of the war, there was much speculation that Russia and China would come together and form a military alliance uh, to tip the scales in um, Russia's direction during the war. And that's never really happened. I mean, we know that there are oil deals or probably other types of trade and economic uh, pipelines that have been reinforced throughout the period, but we really haven't seen the military assistance that was sus suspected at the beginning of the war. I think China has been very canny um, about maintaining its Western interests in that regard, as it is probably going to be maintaining its relations with Israel and this one. But it does seem rhetorically Russia has often spoke along with Russia about Western influence, uh, the, 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 the need to, uh, pursue a multipolar world order away from the West, blaming the West for the war and the problems. But I think that's as far as it went. But let's talk about another burgeoning coalition that could have some effect, but so far hasn't. And that's the Arab and Muslim world. There was a major, meeting in Saudi Arabia last weekend with Arab leaders and Muslim leaders throughout the Middle East, as well as Iran. And there was a lot of expectations about what these countries could do to help break the cycle of violence in Gaza right now. There seemed to be a, a joint communication or a communique that called for a ceasefire, but harsher measures were not agreed upon. I uh, don't have a lot of details on that, but can you talk a little bit about the dynamics at that meeting and, and what came out of it and whether there's any disappointment that Arab and Muslim leaders haven't been more forceful on Israel over the, the carnage that we're seeing in Gaza today? There's definitely a lot to take away from the Islamic Arab summit that the Saudis hosted earlier this month. I think one of the main points to appreciate is the extent to which this summit really highlighted very deep geopolitical divisions that exist in the wider Arab and Islamic world. What is clear is that in basically all of these countries, there is a tremendous amount of rage on the part of the populations. And this puts pressure on all of these governments to take a stance in favor of the Palestinian cause and to come out and use very strong language to condemn Israel. But as you mentioned, we have to distinguish between rhetoric and action. And when it comes to these questions about what kind of action these Muslim majority countries should be taking toward Israel, we saw that they were not able to unify behind a set of concrete actions. This has a lot to do with the fact that some of these countries have formal or informal relationships with Israel, which are rather deep. At the same time, 
Many of these countries depend on the United States. They're existing under Washington's security umbrella. They're very close allies, close partners of the United States. And so when they consider taking actions against Israel, they, of course, have to keep in mind the implications for their relationships with Washington. So what we saw at this summit was Algeria, which is historically a very pro-Palestinian state and uh, just as a reminder, after the Abraham Accords uh, came about in 2020 and we started seeing an acceleration of the Arab-Israeli normalization trend, Algeria stood very firmly against the Abraham Accords and Algeria saw the expansion of the scope of the Abraham Accords as a huge threat to Algeria. So it was... No surprise that at the summit in Saudi Arabia, Algeria proposed a severance of diplomatic relations between these countries and Israel, as well as proposing that no other countries begin to recognize Israel uh, formally through the Abraham Accords. But unsurprisingly, countries such as the UAE, which really stands at the vanguard of the Abraham Accords, did not want to sign up for that. There were also proposals about prohibiting the US, uh, prohibiting the use of U.S. military bases for the purposes of arming Israel. Uh, there was a proposal to use the energy clout, the economic and investment clout, to put pressure on the U.S. to start putting conditions on Israel offer a ceasefire. Again, because of the extent to which a number of these countries have ties, either formal or informal with Israel, and because many of these countries depend on the U.S. in so many ways, what we saw was that the uh, participants at the summit were not able to reach a consensus behind these concrete actions. And what we got instead was what I would say kind of a rather sort of vague uh, commitment to defending the Palestinians that sort of left out any real plans for concrete action. Sure. Uh, that, and that, I think that's right. Uh, thanks, Georgia, for coming on the show. Uh, there, there has not been a, a consensus among these countries. We have seen some individual cases where uh, some states that have had normal relations with Israel have been recalling their ambassadors in protest over the war. Uh, but but no one's quite ready to go all the way towards uh, toward cutting off those ties altogether. Um, turning to the the backlash uh, globally against the war and U.S. support for it, uh, we've seen a lot of reports about how the Biden administration has received warnings from U.S. diplomats abroad, Arab governments, and from their own officials in Washington that support for the war is doing massive damage to America's reputation, uh, not just in Arab and predominantly Muslim countries, but in other parts of the world as well. Uh, how damaging do you think the administration's unconditional backing for the war is for U.S. interests, and how do you think it compares to previous backlashes against the invasion of Iraq or support for the Second Lebanon War? I think in the Arab world, in the wider uh, Islamic world, anger at the U.S. is at an all-time high since the U.S.-led invasion of Iraq in 2003. After the U.S. invaded Iraq uh, a little more than two decades ago, for a number of years, we saw um, the temperatures were very high in the region. There's a lot of anger at the United States. Um, it became more mainstream. 
this rhetoric sort of about jihad against the U.S. occupiers in Iraq. But that did sort of cool years later. I think since October 7th, the policies of the Biden administration managed to bring that level of anti-Americanism right back up to what it was in the aftermath of the Iraq invasion. And Joe Biden is probably the most hated U.S. president in American history on the Arab street. I don't think the Biden administration officials realize how a horrible U.S. policy toward Israel-Palestine post-October 7th has been for the U.S. image in the Arab world. And um, as, as you pointed out earlier this month, there was that CNN piece that reported on cables from American diplomats, I believe, at the U.S. embassy in um, Oman, that basically said that our policies, our one-sided policies in support of Benjamin Netanyahu's government are harming the reputation of the United States in the region to an incredible degree. It would take a long time, I think, for the U.S. to earn back whatever goodwill it had prior to October 7th. I think the blowback will be horrific. I think this will take a long time to change. I think the damage is going to last for a very long time. And this is especially so if Israel's war on Gaza prolongs. It doesn't seem like the Israelis are on the verge of agreeing to a ceasefire. This, according to some experts, this war on Gaza could carry on into 2024. We have a death toll that has surpassed 11,000, but what if it gets to 20,000, 30,000? If it just goes up and up, all of these problems are going to get worse and worse. And on the Arab street, you know, the anger is not just directed against Israel. They they know that it's the U.S. that arms Israel, gives Israel ironclad support, vetoes U.N. Security Council resolutions that would hold Israel accountable. They very much see the U.S. hand in this carnage in Gaza. And I think this is absolutely horrific from the standpoint of U.S. national interests in the Arab and Islamic world and even the, the global south at large. Uh, sure. Well, and I think it, it's, it must be undercutting U.S. efforts to, to boost its uh, influence with, uh, with states like Malaysia and Indonesia, uh, which, which they, the U.S. has been courting uh, at least somewhat uh, in its efforts to try to build up its, its uh, standing in Southeast Asia in, in competition with China. Of course, both of those governments have been uh, quite uh, adamantly opposed to the war. And I think in, in, in the Malaysian case, they, they've been vehemently against it. Um, and, and so it's it's not just a, a Middle Eastern issue. Uh, obviously, it's, it's it's something that that sinks the U.S. reputation uh, worldwide and and really puts us. And when we see that in the, in the votes at the UN, uh, when our representative is one of what twelve voting against the General Assembly motion calling for a ceasefire, uh, and and you have scores and scores of countries voting for it. Uh, it, it just illustrates how terribly isolated we are in the world uh, once again. Uh, and, and it's it's remarkable to think that this has all happened in just a matter of weeks, uh, whereas the the backlash against the U.S. after Iraq unfolded over, over months and years. But this has really been quite a rapid uh, and intense backlash by comparison, wouldn't you say? 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, unlike 2003, we're really in the day and age of social media where everyone sort of sees everything as it's happening live. And I think that helps explain why people have been so mobilized and mobilized so quickly. Um, and yeah, I, I think you you make a great point that this anger against the United States and other Western backers of Israel goes way beyond the Middle East. It goes into Southeast Asia and many other parts of the world. And I think we need to keep in mind that it's going to make it a lot more difficult for the United States to have any sort of moral authority to condemn Russia's violation of Ukraine's sovereignty or to condemn Russia's crimes in Ukraine or actions that other U.S. adversaries take. I think many people in the global south just simply believe there's just too much hypocrisy from the U.S. for anyone to take these condemnations of Russia seriously when they're coming from the Biden administration or other people in Washington. So this will have a huge impact on U.S. interests far, far beyond Israel-Palestine. Sure. And, and of course, there's also the, the danger of a, a wider war that could uh, bring the U.S. into direct conflict with, with a number of regional actors. Uh, fortunately, so far, it seems as if Iran and the groups that it supports are not eager to enter the war if they can avoid it. Uh, there are some reports that there are ministers in the Israeli government that w- have wanted to expand the war into Lebanon to sort of take advantage of the situation to, to deal a, a blow to Hezbollah. Uh, given how badly both earlier wars in Lebanon went for Israel, do you think it likely that Netanyahu would take such a risk? Uh, and overall, how concerned are you about a wider war? Well, I would say that the longer that Israel's war on Gaza continues, there's a higher risk of this conflict spilling into more parts of the Middle East. Already, we've seen this war uh, spread into uh, Egypt, the West Bank, Syria, and southern Lebanon. I think... Well, I definitely agree with you that Iran has shown quite a bit of restraint. I don't think Iran wants to see itself enter an all-out war with Israel. I think um, also Israel would not want to have an all-out war with Hezbollah, nor would Hezbollah want that type of all-out conflict with Israel. But none of that means that such a conflict would inevitably be avoided, even if the different actors in the region do not want such a catastrophic conflict, there still is a risk of that happening. And that is what very much concerns me. And I think this is one of the many reasons why it's so important for the U.S. to change its position and to come out in support of a ceasefire. And given all the leverage that the U.S. has over Israel, Washington is absolutely in a position to impose a ceasefire. I also have another concern that brings us to this point about U.S. domestic politics. We're now within 12 months of the 2024 presidential election. And the Israelis are aware of that. And Biden clearly is not wanting to really put any pressure on Israel. And I just think that if this conflict were taking place right after Biden potentially won re-election or had this been two or three years ago, it would be a little bit different. But Biden doesn't want to be seen as challenging Netanyahu during an election year. 
this would give Republicans many talking points about the Biden administration being soft on Iran or whatever, the Biden administration turning its back on Israel. There are also many Democrats who would um, push those types of talking points and narratives as well. I just think during um, an election season, Biden doesn't want to pick a fight with the pro-Israel lobby. And that is something that does concern me. It makes me think it's less likely that the White House would put any pressure on Israel when putting pressure on Israel is what exactly what the White House should be doing in order to contain this conflict and minimize the risks of a horrendous and much larger regional war breaking out. So I'll, I'll just repeat, um, I think it's possible that the parties will be able to avoid further escalation, but it is a very serious risk that we should all be worried about. Definitely, and and I think uh, of course one of the things that will will definitely uh, wreck Biden's reelection chances is if the U.S. ends up in another Middle Eastern war, uh, especially if there was a way for him to have kept us out of it or to have prevented it from happening, uh, and and he chose for for political reasons, as you say. Uh, not to to take those steps, um, and of course, we, when we were talking about the political implications, uh, we, we've also seen there's been a very severe backlash against Biden from within his own party and from uh, those on the left, uh, and, and not just on the left, but especially those on the left uh, against the policy that he's had, uh, and and so he's he's actually looking at uh, suffering a, a serious political blow by continuing to stay the course with the policy that he has. So it's not as if this is the obviously safe political move uh, just to, to stick with policy that they must know is just going to make things worse, right? I mean, they, or, or what, what, what's your take on the, on the, the backlash against him coming from, uh, from the critics on the left? Yeah, well, you know, uh, the, there was a poll that came out recently said the majority of Americans are in support of a ceasefire. Also, we hear many from the Arab American communities, uh, Muslim American communities who did vote for Biden in 2020, saying that they will not be voting for him next year. I think among those voices, some will vote for him in 12 months and over time, some memories will fade. But I'm also sure that a percentage of them are serious and what they're saying today uh, is going to remain their position 12 months from now when it's time to vote. And when you look at some of these swing states, Minnesota, Michigan, so on and so forth, the Arab American, the Muslim American votes are important. I don't know on balance how Biden's positions vis-a-vis -vis this conflict in Gaza will impact his ability to secure a second term next year. Um, that might be an, another discussion, but I would just say that it is possible that his policies toward this conflict could cost him re-election next year when we consider how important those swing states are. And when you look at how close the vote has been in past elections in some of those swing states, if you have those communities choosing to either stay home or vote Republican or vote for a third party candidate, it could could definitely cost Biden his ability to win a second term. That's a good point, Giorgio, because the Voters on the right who are very pro-Israel right now are 
also criticizing Biden for not being more supportive of Israel. So they're not, he's not buying any new support on his right flank. They're pretty much solidified and will be voting uh, likely for Trump if he gets the nomination. So what he risks is his left flank, those uh, voters who have been traditionally shifting away from Israel over the last 10 years. We've been tracking that. And so he's getting a lot of um, anger and backlash uh, from his progressive quarters. Um, and I don't know if that it, it'll be made up with any new uh, support among uh, pro-Israel Democrats who, you know, we know who they are and they are the more uh, elite and uh, influential Democrats on, on Capitol Hill. You have Hillary Clinton, you have Chuck Schumer and uh, the, the machinery of the, of the, the Democratic Party, so to speak, is very pro-Israel and behind Biden on this. But I, I do think he, he does risk bleeding off uh, a number of pro, uh, progressive voters. So, yeah, he, he does seem to be in, in quite a spot. Um, we'd love to have you back on to sort of check in as this uh, proceeds. I, I think you're right. The longer the violence continues in Gaza, the more the risk for uh, a wider war and and perhaps some of these uh, governments in in the Middle East that have all of these Western ties and ties with Israel, like UAE and Saudi Arabia and others, will come under greater pressure by their own people uh, to to take a more harsher tone. If again, if that violence isn't stopped, so thank you so much for coming on the show, Giorgio. We really appreciate it. Thank and, you. Pleasure is all mine. Let me ask you a question. You know, we can always find your work at Responsible Statecraft, but can you tell our audience where they can find uh, the, the bulk of, of your work uh, every day? Uh, do they go to Gulf State Analytics website or are there other places that you'd like to direct our audience to? Well, your audience can certainly check out my company's web website, which is gulfstateanalytics.com. And I'm also active on Twitter. My handle is my first name followed by my last name. So G-I-O-R-G-I-O-C-A-F-I-E-R-O. -I -I -E Would love to connect with more people on Twitter. Awesome. Well, thank you again and look forward to talking with you again. Thank you so much. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time. <laughs>